we discuss the pull of the past every week. I'm your host, Allison Treat. I'm an author of historical fiction and a freelance editor. Welcome to my show. Hello, readers. Thank you for listening today. Today, I am sharing an interview with the renowned Jody Headland. If you haven't heard of Jodi, I'll tell you a little bit about her, but she is the best-selling author of over 30 historical novels for both adults and teens, and she's the winner of numerous awards, including the Christie, Carol, and Christian Book Awards. Jodi lives in Michigan with her husband, busy family, and five spoiled cats. She loves to imagine that she really can visit the past, although she's yet to accomplish the feat, except via the many books she reads. Today, I'm talking to her about her newest book, which is coming out June 1st. It's called Come Back to Me, and it's the first of her books that incorporates time travel. So we talk about that a little bit, and we discuss her writing process a lot, which was really interesting to me. Um, and I think I learned a lot from talking to Jody about this. So I hope you guys enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Here's Jody Headland. Jody, I'm so glad you could join me on the show today. Yes, thank you for having me. So your latest novel, Come Back to Me, the first installment in your Waters of Time series is releasing on June 1st. Can you tell me about this book? Yes, uh, this book is a new genre for me. I'm delving into the time crossing, otherwise known as time travel. And right. it has a little bit of the flavor of Outlander or the Rose Garden, kind of uh, a little bit of that um, mystical kind of quality to it. But essentially... It is a, about a research scientist by the name of Marion Creighton and her father, and they're both looking to find a remedy that can help cure um, Marion's sister, Ellen, who has a deadly genetic disease. And this disease has already stolen their mother away, but um, Marion's father has been researching for years and years to find what's known as the ultimate cure. And so Marion stumbles across his research and learns that he's been researching ancient holy water and its healing properties. And after her father falls into a coma after drinking some of this holy water, she is determined to test his theories for herself and soon realizes that she's not the only one interested in this research, that it's, it's pretty popular at this point, and other people are searching for it too. And so after a break-in and kidnapping, she's convinced that she has to take the plunge and follow her father back in time to the Middle Ages in order to save her sister. So it's, it's, it uses the vehicle of this holy water as a time travel method, which is a little bit different than some of the other time traveling that you think of happening like in a time machine or a fast car, like in that back old movie, Back to the Future, um, right. or in the Stone Hedges, like in Outlander, some methods... Yes. They take the body entirely out of the present and plop it down into the past. Mm -hmm. And um, so this time crossing isn't quite so obvious. In, in this one, um, the person falls into a coma. And so 
in doing research on people having comas, I read accounts of people waking up from their comas and describing having very realistic dreams while in their comatose state, such dreams that felt like they were almost living an alternate life. And Mm. so that kind of sparked my interest as well as um, after doing the research on the ancient holy water that um, was once believed to cure diseases, that really sparked my interest as well. In fact, um, in medieval times, pilgrims would take uh, or they would buy these small flasks when they were on pilgrimages, and these flasks were known as ampulla. And they sometimes contained holy oil or holy water and were believed to cause healings. And so if you were to go to Canterbury Cathedral, even today, you'd see what's known as the miracle window there. And in that stained glass, stories are told of various people who were healed by drinking this water. So that's an actual window in the cathedral. And so all of that kind of came together and sparked my imagination. And so I decided I wanted to use this vehicle of transporting people into the past by merging this coma with the ancient holy water. And so the characters drink a small amount, which then puts them in a coma and they cross over to the Middle Ages. (laughs) So I'm not sure. It's, it's, It's a little complicated, but it is it. It leaves open the possibility that maybe they're just having visions um, or are they really traveling to the past? You know, it's, it's one of those things. At the end of the book, um, readers will probably question. Mm, okay. Mm-hmm. Sounds so fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was surprised to read the description of the novel because I have, you know, I've read a few of your books over the years and, and heard about you and I, I didn't think you had written about time travel before. So um, I was like, wow, that's new. Um, Uh And have you written about the Middle Ages before? Right. Well, I do primarily consider myself to be a historical romance author. So most of my 30 plus books are written typically in 1800s America. And they're, you know, you're, your typical right. historical romance. In fact, my newest series is set in the Rockies in Colorado. And I recently mm-hmm. wrote a, a, a series about bride ships sailing from England to the Pacific Northwest. And so yes. that's kind of my typical sweet zone. Um, I also have written a couple of biographical fiction books based on the lives of true historical figures. One was Martin Luther and one was mm-hmm. John Newton. And those are also romances because I tell the story of how they met and married their spouses. Right. Um, yeah. And then I have, as far as the med- medieval stories, um, I've also written some young adult novels. And those okay. have been set in sort of a medieval era. Um, they're more of a made up story than actual, like a real place. Um, okay. The settings are, are fictional, but um, I, I have three different series um, that are m- medieval fantasy fairy tale like s- stories for young adults. So this story um, c- 
come back to me, while it's set in the Middle Ages, um, isn't unfamiliar to me because I have researched so extensively for my young adult um, novels that this was sort of a natural (laughs) era to move into. And I, I really do love it because it's, it's so rife with danger and disease and, you know, it makes the plotting and planning really exciting. And I also really love the element of castles and knights and it's a time of chivalry and honor and integrity. So um, it it really is a fun era to write in. So I'm really happy I could, could kind of go into that era through this time crossing. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds exciting. Can you tell me more about holy water? You mentioned a little bit about. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, in researching for this particular novel, um, I was looking at various life-giving sources of water that supposedly could heal diseases and make people more youthful and I mean you've probably heard of like the fountain of life and and other different mythical kinds of water that could supposedly make people youthful and so Mm -hmm. I was like where did all that come from and how how did we get so many different tales about that And so as I was researching, I actually found lots of different sources of people who explored those different um, life-giving qualities and like the claims of Ponce de Leon in his explorations of Florida. And there were some from the Crusades and even Alexander the Great um, claimed to have been searching for this this life-giving water and so if we look back in history, we, we start to see miracles, like periods of where miracles were happening throughout the Middle Ages and even into the 1800s, that a lot of those miracles were connected with water of some kind. And mm. so as I was researching England in particular, I ran across the two, two different places where the holy, where a lot of miracles were recorded, where people were healed, not and not miracles that were made up. Obviously, the Canterbury Cathedral is a beautiful pictorial depiction of miracles that were believed to have really happened. And so the question becomes, well, how did all of that happen? And did the water have something to do with it? And so as I began to formulate this story, I just decided to, I, I looked at all the different possibilities of what, how this water could be, uh, have healing qualities. And I began to associate some of that with the original tree of life from the Garden of Eden. And so mm-hmm. that was part of the theory that, that comes out in the book is that that tree of life helped to bring long living ages to those early human beings. And so, so it preserved life and it 
healed. And so bringing that quality into the holy water through some sort of residue that was left from the tree of life that could then heal and cure and give these very realistic visions that that people think that perhaps, and, and actually there are recorded uh realistic visions associated with this holy water as well, where people drank it and had visions almost like they were traveling to the past. Most of those were recorded as people seeing like the Virgin Mary or, you know, those kinds of things, more religious visions. But it was interesting for me as a fictional author then to pull all that together and come up with my own theory. (laughs) So it's completely fictional, but it's based on some of these things from history, if that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. That's great. Mm -hmm. Um, So can you tell me more about your research process for for this book or for, for for all your books? How does that work out for you? Okay, sure. Um, Well, since I am a historical writer primarily, I have to usually spend several weeks uh, reading biographies or looking through other time period books from that particular era that I'm writing in. And mm-hmm. I really do love reading biographies and original sources like diaries or letters or those kinds of things just because there's so many fun details that you don't get in just a regular historical book and so I find so many plot ideas doing that and so I basically what I do is I just have a a spiral notebook and as I research I brainstorm so I just list page after page after page of ideas that I could possibly use in my new series or in this new book. And so as I brainstorm and list all of these ideas, I finally get to a point where the characters start to come to life in my mind. And then I have a character worksheets that I fill out for my characters and bring them even more to life as I start to flush them out and figure out who they are and what their personalities are and what their goals and their dreams and their, their flaws are. And so once I have my characters living and breathing in my mind, and after I have a basic plot outline, that's when I start my actual writing. And Mm -hmm. yep, as I'm in first draft mode, I I really try not to stop the flow of my writing momentum to do more researching. Um, Mm -hmm. I usually will highlight something that needs more research. And I usually wait until the editing phase before adding in the details I'm missing, just so I don't stop the flow of the story. Uh, Sometimes, you know, you just have to stop and set it aside because you know you can't go any further until you get this figured out and and do a little more research but overall I try to minimize my interruptions so yeah um and that that summarizes my writing process I I would say that once I'm in first draft mode um my writing plan is pretty simple I I plan it into my daily schedule I 
basically will set a, a daily word count or a word, a weekly word count goal. And I always want to say as a side note, especially for young new writers that the, the goal that I first started off with from my weekly or daily word count goal was much, much, much smaller than what I have now. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I, when I started off, I was, I was like happy to get 300 words written a day. You know, mm-hmm. I was, I, I was like two, two to 3000 words a week was a really good week. And now I, give my if I give myself a 3,000 words a day goal, that's pretty typical instead of 3,000 okay. a week. Yeah. So um, <laughs> it's, it's a big shift, but I've been writing a long time. And so it's, it's, it's not anything I would have been able to start off doing, but right. because I've worked my muscles and, and honestly, now that my kids are a little older, I started writing when I had babies and my kids were mm. toddlers. And, you know, that was 300 words a day was all I could physically and mentally do. But now my right. kids are older and they're more independent and I can work longer hours. And so it, it's just a shift in life uh, stages. And so you, I just, I always caution young writers who think, oh, I can't do it because I just don't have the time and I don't have the energy to, to do what you're doing. And I think, well, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to be where someone who's been writing a while is. You start where you're at with what you can do and eventually right. you'll work your way to more. So, um, and the other thing that I, uh, that's part of my writing process is, that I honestly do not let any excuse keep me from my scheduled writing time. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing is an excuse outside of a major catastrophe. So not right. tiredness, not migraines, not, not appointments, not phone calls, not interruption from families. All of that happens on a daily basis, but I still make myself complete my writing goal no matter what else is going on. Outside, okay. I said, like a catastrophe or something. So right, some days right. it's very hard to do that. And other days it's, it's you know, much, it, the, it goes faster and you're on a roll and yeah. things seem to move along. But um, I, the, another thing that's really helped me is that I give myself what I call writing sprints. So mm-hmm. I work for 30 minutes with a word count goal and you know, challenge myself, like say 400 words in 30 minutes or whatever it is. And then when I finish, I give myself permission to get up, go to the bathroom, check email or for a minute or two. And then I sit down and I start another writing sprint. And Mm. so that has really helped to keep me on track. And so basically I, I've just learned to write and not worry about whether I'm doing it write or if my prose is pretty or I you know I try and block out what I think other people might be thinking about what, mm-hmm. what will they think about this try not to think about that at all turn off that internal editor and, and just let the words flow whether they're good or bad and just write so that's my writing process research and writing process in a nutshell and I hope that will inspire others to to write even when it's hard and when 
feel you don't feel like you have the energy. Yeah, those are really wonderful tips and, and advice. Um, I was thinking while you were talking about how you have a greater word count that you reach now, I was wondering how that um, related to the age of your children, because I think I had heard um, that you homeschooled at least at one point. Mm-hmm. So I can right. imagine that 300 words might be it if you're mm-hmm. in the midst of that. <laughs> right. Yeah. I I have homeschooled my kids Mm-hmm. From um, kindergarten through co- uh, through high, at the end of high school, and actually just saw my twin daughters graduate from college on Saturday. Oh, wow. So yeah, I have two left in high school, and so you know, it is definitely hard, much harder in those early years of homeschooling or, you know, I know some, some women or some men, you know, have day jobs where they just can't write during the day and it is hard. And so I would say for anyone in that situation, similar to what I've gone through with homeschooling is that you can't do it alone. You really need help. And for me, that help came from a lot from my husband who believed in my writing and helped you know, do a lot. He carried a pretty heavy load of, you know, helping with our child raising so that I could have time to write. And, you know, all day Saturdays for years, he made dinner, took the, got groceries, took care of the kids. So I'd have all day Saturday, you know, my mom lives in town. And so she also helped. And one day, half a day a week, she would take the kids and you know, oversee their homeschooling, do like she did music with them and art and history and stuff like that, fun stuff. And so that gave me another morning to, to do it. So I would say, don't, you can't do it alone. I mean, you, if you want to move up into more concentrated time, it really does help to have someone on your team who's helping you. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, Mm -hmm. for sure. Um, so coming back to your novel, the sure. come come back to me, which mm-hmm. coming back to come back to me, coming back to come back to me. Um, I just wondered, what do you want readers to take away from this story? Well, I always include various messages in my novels, um, and in this particular book. First of all, I I hope that they are completely entertained and put the book down with a blissful sigh. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But even more, I I hope they'll come away encouraged in some aspect of their faith, whether that's to persevere in their faith or forgive a family member. Because in this story, there, there are some family dynamics, some it's just some really hard things that have happened. And so as the character wrestles through her internal struggles, I hope that encourages readers to do the same. And so each of my stories offers hope in some way. And I I really do hope that readers, readers will be learning right along with my main character that even when life doesn't turn out the way we think it's going to, because her certainly doesn't, (laughs) that Mm -hmm. somehow God works through works things out in his time and his way. And 
I also hope that readers will renew their faith that miracles can occur because my Waters of Time series sort of gives us hope that miracles can happen, but usually not in the way we're expecting them to. So that that would be partly what I hope readers come away with. Yeah, great. Um, so Jody, you've had quite a career. You're a best-selling and award-winning author. You mentioned of over 30 books. Mm-hmm. Um, can you share how you got started and kind of the path that your career has taken over the years? Oh, sure. Like many writers, mo- probably most writers, <laughs> I've been writing since my childhood days. And I always love telling stories and When I was in junior high, I entered my first writing contest. And when I, I I think I took like second place or something like that. And I realized, Mm. wow, I, I do have a gift here. And I think that was when I became pretty serious about wanting to become a writer when I was an adult. And my mom really influenced that writing path. She, when I was young, she helped facilitate my love of writing by reading aloud to me. Mm -hmm. And um, she always gave me good books to read and really provided the kind of environment that fostered my creativity. In fact, we didn't have a TV for a number of years. And of course, back then, there weren't any of the electronic devices that we have now. So it really kind of forced uh, uh, me to just be creative. And so I appreciate that now really so much more than I did when I was a child. I can see just how much that that shaped my creativity. And she was always there, a very positive influence, encouraging me and helping edit for me. And in fact, she still even will read my books ahead of time if I ask her to, to for like, Find find those last errors, mom. If you see anything, let me know. (laughs) And she does. Um, But my my love of writing did follow me into my college years. But I quickly realized that creative writing wasn't a career track that I could necessarily follow to uh, have a job that would pay the bills if, if that's if that's okay to say, (laughs) Um, it it would be very (laughs) difficult to find something as a novice, you know, that you could out of college write um, creatively. And so I decided on a different path and um, moved into social work. And Mm -hmm. I went on and got my master's in social work and was really thankful for all those experiences and opportunities I had because I really feel that when I was working in that field, I really gained a great compassion for for people who are broken and hurting and and helpless. And and that really has helped enrich my stories because I find myself a lot of times having characters who come from sort of an underprivileged or difficult situation. And so that I think wasn't a wasted period of my life. I think everything we go through, all of our experiences go into the pot and, and 
add spice, so to speak, to the writing um, that comes out eventually. But uh, all that time that I was working, I continued to write and submit manuscripts and enjoyed that. But then after having, I have five children. So after my fifth, (laughs) after having five babies, I did take a break. Um, I was pretty busy for a while and Mm -hmm. go figure, right? (laughs) Yeah, I would think Um, so. (laughs) Yeah. So um, I did, but as I got to into the homeschooling stage with my kids and was reading a lot of history at that point. I just found that I just so loved it. I learned things during their history lessons that either I never learned or had forgotten. And so it brought a love of history really back to the forefront of my mind. And at that point, I was reading a lot about heroes of the faith and realized, wow, these are some really cool historical figures and not much has been written about their wives and how did they meet their wives? And so I, at that point I began writing my biographical fiction, which was sort of where I, I branched into publishing with, with that. Um, Of course, at that point in time, uh, the internet and everything was just, starting to go online. And so I contacted agents and tried to submit and really didn't have much success. It was the market even at that point was pretty inundated with agents who were overwhelmed and publishers who weren't accepting manuscripts. And so I didn't really have much success with my first manuscript that I sent in, I set, I set it aside and I started writing a second and all that time didn't ever hear anything back for, I I'd heard back from one agent at that point who said, Oh yeah, I'm interested. Send me your full manuscript, but months passed and I never heard back from her. And Mm -hmm. so finally I decided I'm going to enter a writing contest. There was a writing contest that came up and I thought I'm going to enter this with both of these manuscripts. The second one I had completed by that point. And interestingly, both of them finaled in that contest. And so, yeah, I contacted um, the agent (laughs) who had that first manuscript at that point and said, Hey, I had, I have this contest final And that perked her attention and brought my manuscript to the top of her slush pile. And Mm. so then she read it over the weekend and contacted me the following week and offered to represent me. And and then she was able to sell that manuscript to a publisher in about three months. So it went very quickly once the ball started rolling. And so I do highly encourage contests as a way to break in for for authors who have already, keep in mind, I had been writing a long time before this. Um, It wasn't my first book. It It was the first book that I submitted after my break from writing, but I had written about five novels, if not more, before that, and um, had been 
been reaching a point and I had been studying, learning all I could, reading every single writing craft book I possibly could and had really honed my skills by that point. And so it wasn't my first book. It was, was a lot long down the road. And so, and I had actually also sent it out for critique and, Mm -hmm. you know, had, had a lot of feedback on it and went through it many times. So it was, it, there was a lot of work put into it. It wasn't uh, a magical thing that just somehow happened, you know, (laughs) there was a lot of work that went into it. Yeah. So all that to say, uh, now, um, I've been writing for close to, I want to say 12 or 13 years full time and have published over 30 books. So some of them, or I would say the majority of them are with traditional publishers. I'm still with my original publishing house that I, who published my first book and Mm -hmm. they, I I continue to write for them, but I have branched out. As I mentioned, I've done some other things like my young adult novels and my biographical fiction. And then I've also branched into doing some self-publishing. I've wanted to try that since there's such a, when that came of age, I, 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 I'm always one to, take a challenge and I wanted to try it and see what it was like. And so I have enjoyed that as well. And so have about 10 to 12 books that I've self-published at this point. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, is that included in the 30? Plus? Yes. Yeah. I it mean, is. Th- more than 30 books in 12 or 13 years. That is an amazing mm-hmm. feat, even mm-hmm. for somebody who's not homeschooling their children. So mm-hmm. I just, I don't know how you... <laughs> accomplish yeah. that, but that's wonderful. Right. Yeah. It, it is a lot of work. Last year was a crazy year. I actually did six books and that's my record. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I know. But um, I always like to say that my young adult books are, I did three young adult books and I do those at what I've been doing with those is kind of a fun thing is I do a rapid release schedule for those where I release one a month. So Mm -hmm. one released in, I think, September, October, and then November. And it's really fun for those, that readership, because in a series, they're all so interconnected. And so they really enjoy that. And I found that to be a fun way to release a young adult series, especially. So that does add, you know, and, and they are a slightly bit shorter than my adult novels. So, um, they don't take quite as long to release, but, um, because I've worked in traditional publishing, editing is extremely important to me. And so I put my self-published books through the same process that I do my traditional, traditionally Mm -hmm. published books. I, I hire out an editor and then I also hire out a proofer. I also send, send the books to my first readers is what I call them. And they provide feedback. So there are lots and lots of layers of editing that go into all of my books. So that to me is the most overwhelming part 
of the whole year is I felt like I was editing constantly. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is a question I ask all my guests. How do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, as I mentioned, when I was homeschooling early on when my kids were younger and we were learning about history, it it was absolutely my favorite subject. And when I think about why, I think that encapsulates why history helps us live better today. And I think that we learn so much from the past, both the good and the bad. And when we learn what other people have done and we see not only the heroes, but also those who made mistakes, we're able to help keep our own lives in context. So, for example, if we know that that someone in the past lived heroically and did made huge sacrifices and spoke the truth and was persecuted for us, then it gives us courage to do the same thing. Or if someone did certain things and we see that the negative effects that 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 had on their lives and their families and their their culture, then we think, okay, yeah, there there are long-term consequences to things we do. And Mm -hmm. so I, I always... I just love delving deeper into the the motivations and and all of the the um, just the deeper stories behind what we see on the surface and trying to understand where these people came from and what drove them to do what they did, whether it was good or bad. And those and I think those motivations are similar to what people have today, and we can really relate. So. Yeah, hopefully um, that comes out in my stories with the deeper motivations that people have and and not just learning new facts about history, but really understanding it from a deeper perspective. Right. Oh, yeah, I think it definitely does. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Jody, this has been a wonderful conversation. What is the best yeah. way for listeners to follow you? Well, I would say... The best place is on my website, which is jodyhedlund.com, J-O-D-Y-H-E-D-L-U-N-D. And I have a contact box there that allows people to email me. I take questions from writers, and I love to hear from readers. The, The questions from writers, if I have the time, I usually will answer them on a blog, in a blog post. For so that other writers can see the answers too. Um, another great place to connect with me is in my Facebook reader room. So that is a Facebook group where I chat and hang out with readers. It's a place also where readers can sign up for re- early reading opportunities, and I have giveaways, and we share fun information and do polls and yeah, does all kinds of fun stuff. So that those are probably the two best ways to stay connected. Um, I love to hear from readers, even if it's on Instagram or 
Twitter or where Facebook or wherever I, I usually try and respond as best that best I can. Great. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. So my friends, I hope you enjoyed hearing all about Jody's books and her career and her writing process and her research process. I just was fascinated by all of that. And I hope you were too. As usual, I'm going to ask you to please leave a review, um, especially in Apple Podcasts. This helps people find the podcast who are interested in historical fiction. So go to the Historical Fiction Unpacked podcast page, the main page where it describes what the podcast is about in the app. And then you can scroll down and find the place where you leave a star rating and review. Um, also, if you want to find the show notes where I will have links to Jody's books and her Facebook group and her um, Instagram and, and just different things that we talked about, Go to alisontreat.com slash blog. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T dot com slash B-L-O-G. And then of course, if you would like to join the conversation on Facebook, we have a Facebook group specifically for historical fiction unpacked. And that you can find at his by searching Facebook for Historical Fiction Unpacked Podcast Group, but you can also find a link to it in the show notes. So there are several wonderful reasons to visit the show notes. Um, We'd like to have your voice in that conversation. I really would love to interact with listeners more than I do. Because of the nature of Jody's new series, I want to leave you with a quote about time travel. It's from Albert Einstein. He says, people like us who believe in physics know that the distinction between past, present, and future is only a stubbornly persistent illusion. So my friends, keep reading historical fiction, and I will talk to you again next week. 